Luke chapter 23, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what has happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, 
they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. All through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has made it very clear that he's coming to this point. He'd set his face towards Jerusalem. He has told them again and again that he has to die. In the story of Jesus' death itself, he doesn't spell out quite as explicitly as the other gospel writers what it means. He doesn't say straight out, the death of Jesus saves men from sin and death. And yet, all the same, as Jesus here goes through the worst suffering imaginable, notice what he is concerned with. He's not concerned most of all with himself and his suffering. He's concerned with us, with our guilt, with our forgiveness, with our future. And that's what comes out in each interaction that Jesus has with other people here. And in the background, not spelled out quite as clearly because, really, to be honest, it's been spelled out enough as we've gone through the whole Gospel of Luke. It will be spelled out again in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. Um, is the realization that Jesus is making forgiveness possible while what he's doing, that he, he dies to bring life, that he's suffering the punishment we deserve to give us the life that he deserved. Now, uh, when we imagine the crucifixion, we tend to imagine most the physical suffering, the horror of the whole scene. Luke really wants us to understand even more what it means. Now, if you're trying to describe a scene to someone, Sometimes the most powerful thing to do is not to paint a picture of, of what you see with your eyes, but to, to describe how it makes people feel, how they react to it. You know, you can describe a mountain range as really huge, but if you say, it made me feel small looking at it, you actually get more of an idea of what it was like. You know, some of the most evocative descriptions, for example, of being in space aren't matter-of-fact descriptions of, well, it was very dark and there were sparkly little stars and, you know, very sort of humdrum descriptions. They're descriptions of feeling absolutely tiny, defenseless against the vast void of, the endless void of space that sends shivers down your spine. Luke, in a sense, is doing the same with the cross. He wants to show us, as Jesus interacts with these different people one by one as it goes through the story. How they reacted, what they saw, what they felt, what happened. And then also, even more, how Jesus himself reacted to them. When we see that, we see, we get to the heart of things. Uh, this story is in, in four sections, really, four chunks, each of which shows different people encountering Jesus and then a statement from Jesus in return. 
So firstly, in, in 13 to 25, before we really get to the cross, we see Luke ending the account of Jesus' trials. We remember from the beginning of Luke that Luke is a careful historian. He said he's going to set out in detail exactly what happened so that we can have certainty about what we heard. And there we have a summing up of the different trials that Jesus faced. A summing up of his absolute innocence. Luke wants to, all through this passage, to make it absolutely clear Jesus' great innocence. He's been found innocent um, The religious authorities didn't find him innocent, but we saw what a sham that trial was back in in chapter 22. Pilate, the Roman governor, has found him not worthy of death. Herod, the uh, ruler of the jurisdiction from the north where Jesus was, was actually from, he found him likewise innocent of anything deserving death. And then this section reiterates that. I have not found basis for your charges against him. But of course, Pilate is shouted down. He's shouted down by the religious leaders and by the crowds that join them. And while Pilate again will say, why, what crime has this man committed? I found no grounds in him for the death penalty. All the same, they keep on shouting and he gives in. The injustice rankles with him, but Luke has told, uh, has told him again and again, he's innocent, but Pilate finds it more convenient to let this man die than to lose grasp on his power. So then we move forward with events. Pilate surrenders him. And in 26 to 31, we see the first of the encounters we're going to look at. When Jesus speaks to the crowd of mourning women as he goes on his way to the cross. Jesus has been beaten up three times by this point, if you count it through the story. He's so weak that they have to take his cross or the crossbar that he's carrying towards his place of execution and put it on a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. And perhaps once that cross is lifted off his shoulders and he's able to walk and and speak again, he's able to turn to the woman following him. They're weeping and wailing for him, mourning for him, full of sorrow for this man who's been led to a gruesome, miserable death. They're full of sadness, perhaps, for what they thought this man was, a prophet, or more than a prophet, God's king, God's Messiah. But perhaps not God's Messiah after all, it seems to them, because his life has been cut short. And, you know, you think yourself back into the events of that day, it's not hard to see why they wept. But Jesus' reaction is strange. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. He said this already, or something very like it, on his way into Jerusalem. In fact, he wept himself there. He's warning them. He's saying, there's a coming time when you will, for shame and fear, want the very mountains to fall on you. He's warning them perhaps of the day less than 40 years from when he spoke when the Romans would come and destroy Jerusalem in a horrific siege. But more than that, these words uh, about the mountains, they come from the prophet Hosea, which talks of the way God's people are full of lies and broken promises and rebellion against the God they claim to worship. And which says that there is consequence for that kind of rebellion against God. There is a judgment to face. Jesus is saying, don't think first of what I face. 
Think of what you face. Like Jose, he's pleading with them. He's saying, come, find shelter from the coming storm. Find forgiveness from the God who uh, is willing to give it. He's saying it's time, as Hosea said in that same chapter, it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. So he says, weep for yourselves and, and for your children. He says, you, you can see the disaster coming on me, but in a sense, you're like people sitting on an express train that's heading for another train and you can't see it coming, but you're going for a head-on collision and going about your lives as normal. He went into that awful death and judgment knowing that something worse awaited those who would not accept their death in his place. Now, after words like that, we, we worry, is, is there any kind of hope in that darkness? And the next encounter shows us very much that there is. Jesus and Luke want us to see that there is forgiveness, not just for people like those women who are you know, sympathetically grieving for him, but for the very worst of people. Jesus is led out at the place, to the place called the skull. And there he's crucified. Nails driven through his hands. He's lifted high on the cross. A criminal on each side of him. But again, Luke's concern isn't to drive home the horror. It's let us see Jesus' attitude in that moment. His concern that those, even those doing this, would be forgiven. And he prays, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. People being killed often cry out for vengeance or in grief. It's very rare to cry out something like this. Jesus cries out to the Father and he knows that if he asks, he of all people, the innocent one, asks, then the Father is willing, not just to forgive the woman who wept for him, but also to forgive the crowds who had bade for his blood, even the men who drove the nails through his hands and his feet the men who hoisted him up to die by suffocation and dehydration and pain. And he says they don't know what they're doing. Now, he doesn't mean they're wholly innocent. You know, the story makes that very clear. They're not nice blokes who are just doing their job and happening to get things wrong. It's more that they don't understand the depth, the sheer awfulness of what they're doing, killing the Lord of life. Peter, later, when he spoke to these same crowds, um, after the day of Pentecost, would say, you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. He told them they'd done wrong in killing him, but you acted in ignorance because you didn't realize the sheer gravity, the, the greatness of the one you were killing, the goodness of the one you were killing. In other words, Jesus, when he prays for these people to be forgiven, he's saying anything short of an absolutely willful rejection of the forgiving one himself, the one who came to forgive and to pray forgiveness, is forgivable. And so he says, forgive them. That is Jesus' concern as he's dying on the cross. And these people that he's asking for forgiveness, they really aren't nice people. The, the people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And just in case we thought perhaps the Roman soldiers, at least, you know, they're just people doing a day's work perhaps. But no, they're there too. They're mocking him. They're saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The pain and suffering isn't enough. They want to laugh. Even the sign above him that says his, his crime says, this is the king of the Jews. Even that's mocking him. As if to say, look, this is what 
this king is like, naked and bloody and dying and weak. Surrounded by all that contempt, all that mockery, Jesus is asking for people to be forgiven. In fact, uh, some people who read the Bible in the century, first centuries after Jesus found this verse that Jesus would pray for these people who killed him, who killed the Son of God, who killed the Lord of glory. They found it so shocking, so implausible, that if you, if you look at that verse, verse 34 in your Bibles, you see this little note, E, and it says that some people had actually removed that verse that Jesus prayed that these people would be forgiven from some of the early Bible manuscripts. They thought, this, is, this can't be right. But it was. This was the crime of all crimes. And yet Jesus prays that it be forgiven. That the evil of killing God's son could be wiped away. Now if that can be done, then any judgment hanging over those women earlier can easily be taken away as well. And of course, this prayer of Jesus was answered. Um, I wonder if you've ever reflected that crowd later, 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to them and he, he said, you put Jesus to death. And he said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart. They asked what they could do. They asked, how can we set this right? And Peter says, you know, you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And your sins will be forgiven. And 3,000 people did. So many of the people there, they were forgiven for what they had done. Jesus and Luke, too, want to make it clear what the result of that forgiveness is in 39 to 43. While one of those criminals is mocking Jesus, the other one admits his own guilt. He admits it. He, he tells off the first and he says, don't you fear God? We're, look, we're being punished justly because of what we've done. We're not like this man who's done nothing wrong. Um, he believes not only that, as well as confess it, well, sorry. He realizes he's done something wrong. He's saying, look, I'm getting my, what I deserve. I've, we don't know what he's done, but we know that even he realized it was very, very wrong. As well as confessing his guilt, so admitting his guilt, he believes, he believes in Jesus. He says, not only that Jesus is innocent, he says this man has done nothing wrong, but also he then turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he knows Jesus is coming into your kingdom. This looks like the end for Jesus, but he knows that this man is acceptable to God, that he is more than a man, that this is God's king. He's surrounded by these crowds of people mocking Jesus as a false king, and this one man sees Jesus really is who he claims to be. Instead of his death being the end of the hope of the kingdom, that it is the way to the kingdom. So he believes in Jesus. And then he calls on Jesus. He calls on him to remember him. It's a very simple little prayer. He asks only, just remember me. It's a, it's a small hope, really. Just a tiny faith. But he knows that if there is any way to forgiveness into life in God's kingdom for a man like him, it's through Jesus. And Jesus then gives that utterly breathtaking reply. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Before the sun sets, you will be with me in heaven. I will remember you. I promise you life. I promise you the forgiveness that you need to enter that life. So Jesus is saying there's hope for forgiveness. 
And that that forgiveness means being ushered into Jesus' own presence to live with him forevermore in paradise. Finally, as we come to the moment of Jesus' death, Luke hints about how it's all possible as he's laid the groundwork all through this gospel. It was about the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is till 3 p.m. There were three hours of inexplicable darkness as the sun stopped shining. Now, remember, as 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light. He is the light giver and the life giver. Whereas darkness, all through the Bible on the other side, is a sign of God's judgment, God's punishment on evil poured out. Jesus himself calls hell the outer darkness. Well, here is darkness poured over him. That man who again and again, Lucas said, made very, very clear as innocent, is feeling the punishment of God. And then the curtain of the temple is torn in two. The temple, of course, is the symbol of God's desire to live with his people, a place where you could come and meet with God. But there was always that one curtain, like a fire curtain or a great warning sign saying, you can come close, but not too close. Because God's goodness, God's pure righteousness is too much for any mortal. His judgment will meet you if you come too close. And then suddenly that warning is torn, as the other Gospels tell us, that warning says from the, the top to the bottom is torn in two. As if God is saying, now you can come close. You can come right up to me. You can be with me because he has taken my judgment. And Jesus himself under God's judgment, at that moment of utter darkness, is able to say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. At his darkest moment, he's still trusting his Father, giving himself up to the Father. And the centurion, that grizzled, old, non-com officer, a man who's probably seen death by the dozen, is stunned by what he sees. He knows how people die. He knows how people are executed too. You know, so often they rage, rage against the dying of the light. Or if not, they're filled with anguish or fear. But he sees Jesus peacefully giving up his spirit to God in the most awful of circumstances. And he says, surely this was a righteous man. There's no way this man deserved it. No one can die like this when they are guilty, when they're aware of what they've done. And yet, we've just seen God's anger was poured over him. And to those who know the story in the Old Testament prophecies, that he would come and, and die in our place, would take the punishment that we deserved. That darkness is clearly that punishment poured out on him so that we might live because he died. That we might have life because he's taken death. We might have hope because he was in the darkness for us. That thief on the cross. He's been in heaven a while now. Gives us a good model for how to respond. He admitted his sin, what he'd done wrong. He admitted that he wasn't worthy to come to God. We probably haven't committed the kinds of crimes he did, but all the same, we look into our lives and our hearts. We see we have let down those around us. We have done wrong. We have not lived up to what God called us to. So we come, we admit our sin. 
and we believe, we trust that he is God's innocent king to come to rescue. And then finally, call, call on Jesus. A, B, C. Admit, believe, and call on him. Maybe we've done that a long time ago. All the same. Look at what Jesus wanted on the cross. How he was thinking constantly of the people around him, even as he died, wanting their forgiveness. Saying, weep not for me, but for, for yourselves. Saying, saying to them that there was forgiveness, that there was hope of life. Praying to the Father for forgiveness. His concern was for them, just as it is for us. This is your king who, even as he died, even as he bore the punishment of God, was thinking of you and your forgiveness. That's what Luke, the historian, wants to record. A man who died like no other. Because, of course, he was far more than a man. Someone who was willing to give up his life so that we might live. Let's pray for a moment before we sing. Father God, your son, even as he died, was longing to see the forgiveness of the very men who killed him. He was willing to take all the punishment that they deserved so that they could be free and have life. He was able to offer with utter certainty because of what he was doing, that place in paradise to the criminal dying beside him. And that love we know extends also to us He was so willing to die because he wanted to make a way for us to be with him forever. That is a wonderful truth. And we pray that it would sink deep into our hearts today. That you were willing to make a way for us, whatever the cost. In Jesus' name.